0: Hello, my name is Julia Streets, and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion, and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today I'm joined by Alicia Miller and Dan Rickard. Alicia Miller is the Amir Director of Learning and Development at the legal firm Reed Smith, where her role is to design organisational development initiatives, partnering with industry leaders across the region. She sits on Reed Smith's diversity and responsible business committees and works closely with the firm's global women's network, Winners. A champion of LGBTQ initiatives, Alicia serves as a non-executive director of MyGwork, the LGBT networking and recruitment platform. And with Dan co-chairs the LGBT chapter of the group called The Network of Networks. Alicia,
1: welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting
0: me. Dan Rickard is the transformation lead in PwC's UK sales and marketing function and is an ambassador of Glee at PwC, the firm's LGBT plus network. With Alicia, Dan is the founder and co-chair of the Network of Networks, connecting leaders across more than 150 organisations that all come together to share best practice in their networking development initiatives. He was nominated in the 2016 and 2017 Financial Times Top 50 LGBT Future Leaders in Business and is a mentor for Open Door, the charity supporting older LGBT people. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And as always, at the start of the show, we invite each guest to talk about what they're up to at the moment. So, uh, Alicia, let's start with you and what are you particularly focused on? Thank
1: you. So uh, my life revolves around learning and development, behavioural change and our organisational development initiatives. That's the day job, the gay job is looking after and uh, co-chairing PRISM, which is our LGBT uh, network within Reed Smith. And of course, working with Dan on Teen On, the Network of Networks, which is the LGBT chapter. The joy at the moment is that I am seeking... To step out of the limelight just a little bit, to invite others to take the spotlight and to lead, certainly for Prism uh, to Reed Smith uh, to invite future, younger—dare I say uh, it—leaders to really bring out the next generation of what Prism looks like at the firm, and doing a bit more of the day
0: job. That's that's me in a nutshell. Wonderful. That's great. So let me turn to you, Dan. What are you up to at the moment?
2: I started a few months ago a new job at PwC that's keeping me pretty busy. Uh, working from one of your previous guests, Andy Woodfield.
0: Oh yes, indeed, yes.
2: Who uh, founded a few years ago Glee at PwC. Um, I've recently, uh, like to say, retired from that role at Glee uh, and taking a step back to focus on my career, and also been thinking about uh, doing more uh, initiatives around inclusion and well-being with clients through my sales and marketing role day to day. I've also been really thinking about how we apply uh, inclusion best practices through a sales and marketing lens.
0: So, Alicia, I mean, there are clear benefits and we have lots of guests on talking about inclusion and diversity initiatives. And and I'm really interested in your role in learning development as well. Um, But I'm also really keen to get to the heart of what impact learning and development and particularly D&I sort of has on organisations. And that's something you do as a day job. Can you share from your perspective some of the impacts? Uh, happy to. Yes. It's sort of, um, I look at it from a,
1: I, I have a joy of a Venn diagram in front of my eyes all the time. So I look at it from the point of view of in professional services organizations, the product is ultimately the human being. It is the core of what the offering is to the client of that organization. If we don't focus on that person, if we don't allow them to be great in whatever it is that they're doing, we're missing a trick. And for an organization to tap into that we have the opportunity for organizational growth, organizational development, and ultimately to serve our clients in a better way. So when I look at sort of development initiatives with both the L&D hat, the uh, diversity and inclusion hat, I'm thinking professional development, what does it look like for the individual? What does it look like to be, call it the best lawyer you want to be, call it the best uh, in your professional service environment, or the best business person that you need to be? How are you then impacting the profession? The way in which we look at lawyers, at accountants, at our professional services, and ultimately in a commercial context, how are we holding our firm to account to say, there's a beating heart at the core of it. more we can do that, the more we can actually have those filters, the more we can actually get our clients to think in the same way. What is interesting, what I'm loving seeing is actually the clients are driving it more. So it is, I used to think it was a vicious circle of actually, oh my God, what do we do next? But actually, it is a, I look at it more in an infinity loop. We are feeding off each other. We are feeding into each other and we are pushing each other to grow in a different way. It is not easy.
0: And, and can you share some, uh, some thoughts around when your clients are asking you about your diversity and inclusion and your learning and development initiatives? What are they particularly asking you? They want to know what's different. They want to know what it is that is going to, first
1: of all, set us apart and that they are going to be able to partner with. So in, our, in a, a learning and development example would be inviting our clients to have the space to talk about leadership development. Inclusive leadership is one arm um, of that, which is, which is wonderful to actually sort of go down that rabbit hole. It's great to do. But if I think about actually professional leadership, how are we actually building the right teams to lead and to grow and to work on a specific matter for clients, for our individuals, and actually for a market area that we're doing? With that brings the view on how we do things differently. Diversity of thought, diversity of opinion, having the space for that, the way in which we approach a question from multiple viewpoints. It's almost almost like a kaleidoscope as opposed to the Venn diagram. It's sort of ever-changing in my mind. That's where the driver comes. Law firms, very similar. Professional services, very, very similar. So what is it that sets us apart? And it is that human being. It is the human connection and how we tap into that.
0: And I know one of the things you've been thinking about, uh, partly with the network of networks, which I was saying at the beginning of the show, is 150 plus companies that kind of come together, is when you look at um, the networks that you've been involved with, are you seeing some uh, natural evolution Given the tide of change to help you stand apart, and are you finding some areas where further attention is required? Where, where are the gaps? That is a
1: great question. That really is. What I, and this is actually something that Dan and I debate a lot. Really
0: um, Looking forward to bringing Dan in in a second.
1: <laughs> he's very, because the thing is, we, we actually look at it from a network perspective, which is very much sort of um, Dan has the absolute guru view on this. And I'm looking at it from the individual perspective. And I think that is what is key to understanding where there is development in the networks, where there is development to allow the networks to grow and to ultimately feed through the organization. If we don't have a balance between the individual and then the collective, again, we're missing something.
0: And, and are you finding some of the uh, the boundaries of existing networks changing over time as well? Dan, do do come in at this point because I'm really interested in your views because I'd say you you, you sit at both in common, obviously objective, but of different come from different angles as well.
2: If I look at the membership of the uh, networks and networks, we have a huge diversity of maturity of within the diversity journey, huge diversity of roles of the leaders within the organisations and levels of seniority within the organisation. And as well, um, just various sectors, which are huge difference between professional services, banks and public sector, some with very different levels of budget. So actually success means different things in a different context. What I do see um, a common thread that more and more organizations are picking up on um, setting up networks. I think we're moving away from the big, large corporates to more mid-sized tier that traditionally didn't have networks didn't think as much as about diversity from a from a organizational perspective. So I think when we are having new members come on board, it tends to be the smaller organizations now.
0: And as you look at the, um, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because when you think about how those organizations come into the network of networks, and they have some very clear expectations, and I often wonder how. And be, I'd say that I'm sure there's no rigid answer how do they set their objectives in terms of, you know, where they are now, where they want to get to? I mean, it's interesting, Lisa, you were talking about how you engage with your customers to, to do that as well. Are you, are you seeing some kind of common objective setting uh, in that? And, and how do you begin to set KPIs around around networks?
2: So I think there is usually two different ways network, network will start. Usually they're either more grassroots, saying a few employees getting together, I want to do something. Or really coming from the top is, oh, we need to do something about DNI and let's set up a network. Um, and they come from two different angles, and usually you find the right answer comes somewhere in the middle, where there is some really keen people who want to do something and have a common understanding and goal of commonality, wanting to do something, and as well that meet those organisational goals and how they'll meet together um, to be credible within the organisation. They need to speak the language of the organisation, uh, whether and whether a metric is gonna land, whether it's financial, people engagement, a number of events, you gotta have some numbers somewhere that gonna to speak to your leadership and having that clear sponsorship. But actually what you really need is, is doers as well. A network is relying on people who are volunteers doing this above and beyond their day job. I think where I've seen most successful is when the, the organization as a collective recognizes those people's contribution to the wider organization. Usually, it doesn't make your promotion, but it might set you apart in that HR process.
0: And it's really one of the things I love hearing is when people say, you know, traditionally, if you or if you only wind back a matter of years, that if you took on something, it was very much on the side of the desk, it was something you chose to do. But actually, as young execs come through, they are looking for opportunities to take leadership positions before they necessarily become leaders in their commercial sense in their commercial roles and and are you seeing that more and more I'm just building on your point really are you seeing that more and more organizations recognize that the skills that you bring on and and you were talking about you know the young execs coming through to shine as part of your prism initiatives for example are you seeing that that the organization's much more supportive of embodying that into, into into the company ethos and also the development structure Something that
1: I'm seeing is actually a an awareness of the space to do that. And I'm seeing a lot more autonomy. I'm seeing less directive, or perhaps it's sort of this, there's a shift in leadership. We're moving away from the command and control. We're moving away from perhaps... And maybe this is unkind, but the sort of the, the snowy white peaks of leadership. It's those who've been there for many, many years. who are at the top of the profession and we're doing amazing things. I really like that
0: expression, by the way.
1: Um, I might have to check that just to make sure I'm not <laughs> offending anyone. I hope I'm not. Um, but it brings in the fact that, you know, organization is is not the sort of the pyramid anymore. We have to actually have everyday leadership. We have to invite those who have different ways of doing things, who are thinking differently, who have had a very different experience through you know, before they come into the profession, through their education, through their life experiences, to live that in a professional context. If we don't allow the space, we are, we risk marginalizing a generation of people who are going to be leaders very quickly. The pace of leadership and the pace of change is so much faster these days. And if we don't engage in the right way, if we don't have the space in our organizations to listen to that,
0: to encourage conversation we will miss out and, and the organizations talk a lot about you know the the need to bring your authentic self to work but there's a great there's a great there's a, oh, a deep intake of breath there that's always good uh, so but but if you think about it also what's authentic leadership as well and the, and the two sort of very much blend but there's a big statistic which, which which gets thrown out quite a lot which is you know particularly thinking about the lgbt agenda which is that you know 62 percent of lgbt graduates reportedly go back into the closet when they come into the workplace. And I'm really interested in these dynamics of yeah, how you can bring your authentic self to work, become an authentic leader by getting involved in some of the initiatives, but yet that some of them may not necessarily feel very comfortable Doing that, and and it's an open question, really. And just love your thoughts, particularly because you are both very deeply involved in your own networks, and also with with a kind of pan business view as well from teen on
2: I think what's really important is for organisations to create the culture where people feel they can come out. Um, a network is not going to be everybody's cup of tea, and that's perfectly fine. Um, I also think that's something that people will get involved in over time, and then will get bored of it, uh, or just move. To something else because they have different aspirations and um i think that's that's very natural cycles of networks in general uh any network actually not just lgbt networks um so i i'm not sure it's necessarily always an issue that people choose not to be out at work
1: i think if i can if i can add to that i think there is I, i i think about the concept of identity and who we are in any given environment From waking up in the morning to the commuter person that we we turn into, to walking through the doors of our professional organisations, we are three, four, five, often ten different people. So the concept of the
0: the commuter person,
1: (laughs) exactly, very true. Everyone knows the elbowing one at at the tube stop. That's absolutely true. So understanding who we are. And I think that's where I come back to the core of the human being. Who are you? Who do you want to be? And for an organization to tap into the space to allow that is where I think we'll see change. I'm not surprised that people go back in the closet. But I would like us to define what the closet is. Because if I think about if I'm drawing on some of the gender work that I do, for women in professional services, first of all, and and I'm happy to be challenged, but first of all, they are thinking, I want to be a really good professional. I want to be shining. I want to be successful for what I am doing. I don't perhaps want the fact that I'm a woman to either get in the way or be the defining factor. I want to be successful. So we need to invite people to consider what is your closet and who are you? If I think about my own organisation, Reed Smith, we have a number of inns, and I call them—you know—that's that's perhaps my phraseology. But it's those who are very comfortable in their own skin, they are out, but they don't necessarily want to be part of a network. They don't want to be this, this sort of the more visible of our role models. But day to day working with them, they're out. They're very comfortable. Everybody is is sort of championing them as leaders for being leaders, not for being
0: gay, perhaps. Dad, anything you'd, you'd add there?
2: Maybe it's perhaps when I moved to the UK that I actually made a very deliberate choice to come out at work. Um, I previously worked in Paris, where I think you worked as well, uh, and in uh, in Prague in financial services, uh, very different environments where I was not out at work after being out university. And I think that was almost more to do with the country context and actually the organizational context. Um, when I moved to London, I just felt I could be out as a city. It was very easy for me. Um, and therefore, I think it's, it's got to be a personal decision. And again, back to my initial point, the culture and the organization got to allow those people to come out Sh- should they want to be out.
0: So one of the things that, that uh, a lot of our guests talk about at the moment is that, uh, and we sort of explored this a little bit earlier in our conversation, about how uh, the dynamics are changing and how the, the boundaries, if you like, to networks are changing as well. And the question of intersectionality comes up a lot. And beginning to see how uh, that is a risk when you go out on a gender agenda, uh, that then it tends to be mostly or you run a risk of becoming predominantly white privileged females. And in LGBT, that it also runs a risk of being very uh, white centric as well. And I'm very interested in your views and your experiences of the intersectionality around ethnic minority LGBT employees and reaching out to, to other segments and other networks and seeing how you can how how you work together with them.
2: In my experience, I must say, even at any non on breakfast, you predominantly have a white room, um, 70% male, 30% female. Uh, and that's pretty accurate in any organization, I think, if you look at the diversity of the networks. Corporate. And, and networks.
0: Who, who's normally in the room? Is it, is it heads of learning and development? Is it heads of HR, D&I?
2: We have a whole variety of roles within the organisations and level of seniority. Um, so, and I think that's true with any kind of LGBT corporate network. They tend to be more male dominated, uh, quite often with a female co-chair, but and because that's a very deliberate uh, approach to wanting to have a a gender balance uh, as a co-chair for a visibility perspective. um, And I think that's really important. Um, Beyond that, it's quite hard to see a lot more diversity, quite visible diversity, at least. Um, And it's true that it's quite tough to engage some of those other uh, minority groups. And also I think that's not just in the organization, but actually the LGBT community can be quite uh, segregated in itself outside the organization.
0: And do you see that changing over time? Do you think there's increasing awareness in that? Is that something we should be talking about more on the podcast about, you know, why and, and how actually intersectionality can, can really truly come together?
2: I think one big issue we're seeing outside the workplace amongst the gay male community is racism. And that's certainly coming very apparent and visible um, on dating apps uh, where you can filter uh, through ethnicity. Um, a lot of discrimination against people living with HIV, uh, as well, that's a huge issue in the gay in the gay male community. So it's not just within the organisation that that's a challenge; it's also outside the workplace.
0: And pushing even further into um, the T of LGBT as well. I mean, it's encouraging that see so many organisations taking on the transgender uh, discussion and and actually changing some of the policies, some of the uh, you know, the HR policies, and uh, and really uh, appreciation that if you can accelerate change by looking at the world through a transgender lens, that can be incredibly empowering as well again i'm interested to to what degree um you know teenon and the lgbt networks actually uh, embracing greater uh, transgender um uh, initiatives and empowerment well i think certainly just to and
1: i'll i'll, I'll defer to dan because he has the the better data and details on this but i think certainly with Teen On, something that we have that we've always it's, it's been part of who we are is how to bring thought leadership how to focus on actually very pressing issues within within uh, organizations but also just generally within lgbt community and to also have space for i guess the non-for-profit the charitable side um our final uh, event of 2018 in fact uh, we had an we had an incredible event for teen on dan you you know sort of the names and the details for it but it was it was, it was moving. Uh, and it's one of the first times I've actually felt the emotion that brings, that tinon can actually bring in a professional context. Um,
2: so yeah, during our last Breakfast of 2018, we invited a guest speaker to, who is an out trans woman living with HIV uh, to speak talk about her experience. Uh, she was ambassador for Positive Voices for uh, Terence Higgins Trust. Um, so, and it was during HIV Awareness Week, just following Trans Awareness Week. So uh, kind of just educating people around those two issues um, and inviting charities like Mermaids we have in the past who actually support LGBT people in society. Um, that's sort of th- something we've done, tried to do our bit through TeenOn.
1: On. So I was thinking about your point around intersectionality and where... Well, I think where the network chairs especially can be role models of behavior, if they are coming together, so if we've got a multicultural network, if you've got your disability network, your LGBT network, if those networks chairs are coming together to have greater understanding of what it is like to be in this identity, what it is like to be um, a Muslim woman working in professional services, what it is in any way that you can actually have greater understanding what it is like to be mobility impaired or to have, you know, sort of, uh, to be living with a, a mental illness, for example. Um, and forgive me if I'm not using the right words. But this is actually a way of, I guess, sharing some learning. We're going to start sort of pushing behaviours out. We are going to encourage people to come together. As an example, personally, I will never know what it's like to be a Muslim woman, bisexual because that's not me. But to understand more about those different things helps me to then understand what I can do in my own world that could be bridging some of that gap around intersectionality.
0: So let's take a moment there to turn to Cynthia and Robert for some research
3: to support the discussion today. In the Financial Conduct Association 2016-17 Annual Diversity Report, 94% of LGBT plus employees believed that the FCA treated its employees fairly regardless of sexual orientation. Between 2015 and 2017, membership of FCA individual networks across the diversity spectrum increased by over 50%, with the greatest increase being in the disability network, Embrace.
4: According to the 2018 Stonewall LGBT in Britain and Home Communities report, 51% of all black, Asian and minority ethnic LGBT people reported experiencing discrimination or poor treatment within their local LGBT network because of their ethnicity. This number rises to 61% among black LGBT people.
3: In 2018 Sheffield University opened a set of LGBT only student flats to provide a safe space for students to be themselves. The university received 30 applications for 12 rooms and plans to expand the accommodation this year. This is a result of concerns from the student union that gay and transgender students have been subject to bullying and harassment in mainstream accommodation.
4: However Universities have been warned of a creeping segregation on campus. According to the article, an explicit ban on heterosexual students could further fuel student segregation. In the same year, a report from Stonewall found that 42% of LGBT students in the UK were forced to hide their sexuality at university. And 33% have received negative comments from other students.
0: So thanks, Cynthia and Robert. And links to the research can be found on our website, www.diversitypodcast.com. And remember, that's diversity with a C, not with an S. And that's where you can find all our episodes and sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod. And Diversity Podcast is available on BrightTalk, iTunes, SoundCloud and all good podcast channels. And we'd love a rating. It all helps promote the show. So um as we go into the final section of the uh of the discussion today, which I have to say I'm really enjoying, and what I love particularly about this episode is it's it's deeply considered. I know it's always risky that we have people come out and talk you know, with rhetoric and platitudes about initiatives. And, and I love the fact that it's been very considered. Um one of the things that I've been thinking about, and you tend to hear frames mostly in the world of LGBT is the question of allies, you know, in the framework of sponsors and mentors and allies as well. And I wonder sometimes whether we have an overswing, whether we've got a pendulum shift uh, that's gone a little bit too far and I'm really keen to hear your views on what do you think about allies?
2: I have a strong view on the word of allies. I really dislike that word. Um, I'm not at war. I don't need help as a gay man. So I really don't like that term specifically. I do recognise the needs though for advocates champions of LGBT diversity within the workplace. It doesn't really matter if they're straight or gay. Actually it's people who are a bit really happy to call out bad behaviour when they see it, be visibly supportive of people who might not feel comfortable to be out and actually create that inclusive environment which is really key. Doesn't really matter how we call it. I think there's maybe been a bit of an overemphasis of allies in the last few years.
0: And it sounds like it's just very much focused on the individual. It's like you know, I will be an ally of you, which sounds to me actually, I'm I'm, I'm quite there with you. Going actually, yes, that sounds a little personal, and a little bit a uh, bit, bit bit direct. But actually, in the the call out culture is incredibly important. I think on the back of Me Too, and we won't go into into, into Me Too specifically, but thinking about cultural change and how when you're looking at an organisation and thinking about the individuals within an organisation, how you can become a very positive ally and and uh, engaged with that organization actually sort of Daniel's point about allies
1: is is um, actually really resonating for me um we've been talking about impact we've been talking about labels we've been talking about allies and for me this is what are we actually waiting for are we waiting for this label is it some kind of permission to say i support you and actually, I think if I if sort of bring back um, to my own personal value drivers about what I do in in the DNI or LGBT space, see people see the person at their desk struggling with something see the person who perhaps is a bit more quiet have the courage to talk to them have the encourage to invite them to talk about themselves i mean this something that's that I've, I've taken a lot of time over um over this past year or so is thinking about mental health first aid in the workplace and actually that's something that's hugely relevant right now because we are all wading through our own personal stuff all of the time then identity then professionalism 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 then actually being successful and we're all sitting at our desk going help me we don't scream it very loudly and it's those who absolutely hide that need to be drawn out what are you waiting for have courage in a conversation create impact by seeing the other individual and saying starting the conversation
0: and i think the mental health lens is really important to kind of shine a light on that because that 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 has a in many ways, a direct impact on productivity and particularly about performance. And of course, the whole diversity inclusion debate uh, as we frame it on the podcast is very much about uh the impact on commercial intention and uh and, and productivity because otherwise it just becomes a nice to have as we look ahead i'm really keen to hear a about your plans and also what you're really optimistic about so so dan for teen on, what what are you focused on this year
2: i think we're going to look to innovate a little bit uh, more incrementally than uh, radically um we've got some things that work really well so we're going to continue doing four to five breakfasts a year um early mornings because that suits both alicia and i um we last year we we brought in pink news to kind of do the in the news updates the year before we had the new charities pitch so we're going to keep on those but actually bring new elements of uh, networking probably more um guest speakers as well just more variety in terms of backgrounds but i think we found something that works quite well um both for us because we do this in the spare time um and as well that kind of keeps it fresh and uh, keeps people coming along
0: and it was a great pleasure to have been a speaker at your event in January this year. So uh, thank you for the invitation for that. Thank you, by the way. And uh, Alicia, let me turn to you. So, what are you optimistic about as you look ahead?
1: I think there is there is so much to be optimistic about, um, and I think a lot of it comes through evolution. Actually, not no, not only innovation, but actually there is, there is there is a there is a groundswell. I think within culture. I think there is a groundswell within um, some of the political stuff, not going anywhere near that, just FYI, within economics, within uh, the generations coming through, actually within the way in which diversity and inclusion is evolving. And wow, to be riding that crest would be be incredible. I think there's so much positivity to look at. We're great at navel gazing. We're great at saying what's bad, but there is so much positivity that is coming up. Just need to see it. Just need to welcome it. And we just need to say, come and help us with this.
0: Well, I think that's a perfect moment to end the show. It's been a real pleasure to have you both on. Thank you very much indeed, Alicia and Dan. Thank you. Thank you.
3: This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Roet Pinto-Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, Diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.